You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. You ever feel obligated to do something you didn't want to do? I mean, it could be you're being here today. I don't know, but I hope not. I hope you're here because you want to be, but uh, I mean, sometimes I feel obligated to get out of the bed in the morning um, just because, but there's times in life that we feel obligated to do things, and I don't know about you, but I don't feel the most appreciated and the most loved when somebody does something for me out of obligation. I think in any relationship, you really hope for more than an obligatory response when it comes to how you relate to one another. I mean, if someone were to ask Carla why uh, she loved me, she says, well, you know, I'm married to him, so I feel obligated to love him. Uh, That would not, you know, that's a reason, but it's not the best one. It's not the one that I'd be hoping for if asked that question. When it comes to working a job, I think we've all been there where we feel obligated to go because we're getting a paycheck. Well, I feel obligated to be here because I'm getting paid, uh, but we all know probably, especially in customer service, where we encounter people that the only reason they're there is because they're getting paid, and that's not always a good interaction in customer service. Obligation is a reason to do something, but it is somewhat of the lowest internal motivators for excellent work and loyalty, just because I'm obligated. I feel obligated to do this. It's a motivator, but not the best one. Another way employers try to increase maybe productivity or try to increase loyalty to a company or love for a particular thing is they'll do incentives. Well, here's an incentive. If you do this, then you'll get this. If, if you uh, work this many days in a row, if you do this many days without getting sick or being off work, then here's an incentive for you. Maybe a bonus or whatever. There's contractual agreements. And then it's kind of a normal way to encourage people or an employee to work harder, to work better, and to be most efficient. One of the places that you'll find some of the more ridiculous incentives is in the sports world. And they'll have incentives to do things. And if you do this, then we'll give you this much more money. Because the amount of money they're giving for the things that you're doing just seems like, okay, that's blowing my mind. There's a running back years ago by the name of Eddie Lacy. Some of you may know him. He was a great running back at the University of Alabama. And uh, it, when he got to the to the professional football, the NFL, he was a high draft choice. But he had problems coming into camp keeping his weight down, like in a good playing weight. He was a running back. And so they actually wrote up a contract where they would give him incentives to show up to camp at the proper playing weight because in the offseason, my man liked to eat, I guess, right? And so here's just like if he came to camp at the workouts, he would get a bonus of $385,000 if he showed up at the right weight. I don't know about you, but if somebody, $385,000, man, we're fasting for a while. And then $55,000 every month thereafter if he kept his weight down during the season or leading up to the season. But an incentive usually only has selfish and material gain for the person, and that won't last either. 
That's not going to motivate us internally long term. And the upside down kingdom of God is actually very different than the way that we go about things in incentivizing or trying to oblige people or motivate through obligation. And it was seen in the life of Christ. He flips the self-aggrandizing motivators on its head, if you will. Our motivation now is supposed to be rooted and grounded in love. A love for God that causes us to want to glorify God, to serve him in any way and every way without wanting anything in return. I don't want anything back. I want to do this because of my deep, great love for God. And this is how Jesus and the Word of God helps us in every area of life. He says that in your marriage, you are to love your spouse, husbands, as Christ loves the church and laid his life down for the church. Or how about work? Work as unto the Lord. Or in life, Colossians says, in everything you do, do it as unto the Lord because of your love for him. That's your motivation. If you have your Bible with you, I want you to turn to Ephesians 5. We're in the book of Ephesians. We've been in the book of Ephesians. We're going to stay in the book of Ephesians for a few more weeks in our series, Sit, Walk, Stand. And we're going to start in verse 1, which makes it clear to me, I believe, that our greatest motivator in how we live our lives as Christians is love. It's to imitate God and to walk in love. That's what we're going to read in this passage of Scripture. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1 and through verse 6. That will be our text for this morning. It says this, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Who, Lord, help us with this one, Jesus. Thank you for your word that sets us free. And thank you for your word because of your great love for us. For context sake, verse 1 of chapter 5, depending on what you read in commentaries, actually is a weird uh, break. It's kind of just they decided to put chapter 5 here. It really is tying into chapter 4 because that's why you see the word therefore. Therefore what? Because of what it just said in the last verse of chapter 4, which says that we should be kind and compassionate towards one another, forgiving one another just as God forgave us in Christ. That's the last verse of chapter 4. Because of God forgiving us, and because of God being compassionate and kind towards us, therefore, now this is what we do. And then why? What do we do? Therefore, because of what Christ did by forgiving us, we are to imitate God. We're to be imitators, followers, it says, or best translated, mimics. Ever have somebody mimic you? Especially children or whatever, but somebody mimics you and then like in our family, it's like, stop copying me. Stop copying me. Like they're copying me. And God's saying, copy me, mimic me. Like a child mimics their parent. I want you 
to mimic me. As children of God, you're to look like your heavenly father. So mimic your heavenly father. Why? Because God forgave us. That's what it says, because of verse one, therefore, because God forgave us, because he was compassionate and kind. And then it sandwiches that together with the end of this verse in verse two. And it says, why? Because he gave himself for us. These are the reasons. It's sandwiched there together. We're to be imitators of God because he's kind and compassionate, that he forgave us, that he loves us, that he gave himself for us in Christ. And because of God's graciousness and generous towards us, his beloved children, we are loved children of God, so we're motivated to walk in the way of love. That's what he says, walk in the way of love, meaning laying our lives down. That's what walking in the way of love is. And the best way to do that The best way to lay our lives down, the best way to walk in love, he's saying, is to mimic, imitate, follow God. God is love, so mimic him and walk in love. This is what Paul is emphasizing. So the great motivator here, it's not out of obligation. The great motivator here is the great love of God for us in Christ. We are so loved that this is what we do. In verse 1, it says, you are dearly loved. Some translations say, you are my beloved child. This is the same way God spoke about Jesus in Matthew when he says, this is my beloved son whom I well pleased. This is the same thing that he says about us, that God loves us as he loves the Son. What? I mean, I am like Kevin Hart commercial. What? Are you kidding me? That God loves us the same way that he loves Jesus, his Son. We are saved into a loving relationship with God the Father that is supposed to result in us showing our love for him. How? By the way that we live. And Paul says the way that we live is by walking in love. So I would say this, how we live, and we're going to get into this, by live holy and pure before God, how we live is less indicative of how much we love God and more indicative of how much we grasp the depths of God's love for us. Isn't that how we think often? It's like, well, if you really loved God, you would do this. No, 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 no. That's not how God motivates us. He said, if you really understood how much I loved you, you'd do this. We are saved into a loving relationship with God because he loves us. Honestly, there is no way, no matter how many songs we sing or write, no matter how much we study scripture, no matter how much we go through life in the body of Christ, going through the things that we go through to truly grasp how much God loves us, but we can and we should continue to search the depths of God's love. So I wanna ask you some questions about love. How do you know the depths of someone's love for you? Number one, by how much it costs them. You know, uh, youthful love is a lot cheaper than adult love. Like, you know, I buy my girlfriend in high school like a little silver chain that cost me like 25 bucks at J.B. White or something back in the day. Uh, the, the ring that I got a little older and the ring that I got for Carla when I, we got engaged was a whole lot more than 20 bucks. Right? Like love gets a little more expensive and in a much more holy way right we're going to figure out this is what Jesus has done for us but I'm just talking in general it, it we know somebody the depths of somebody's love for us by how much it costs them to love you number two how little we deserve it number three how much we receive from being loved by them and number four by the freedom that they give it 
how freely they give that love. Now let's think of these questions and answers in terms of what Jesus did for us. How much did it cost Jesus to love us? How much did it cost him? It cost him his body, his blood, his very life. Scripture is true. There is no greater love than this, than someone would lay down their life for their friend, that Christ has laid down his life for us. John 15, 13, to love is to choose suffering for the sake of another. Jesus chose suffering for our sake. His love for us cost him everything. It cost him his life. There is no greater price. How deserving were we of this cost? Not at all. We didn't deserve it at all. This is what scripture tells us. You see at just the right time, Romans 5 says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we didn't deserve it, while we had done nothing to earn it, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves us. We know the depths of Christ's love for us because of the abundance we receive. So here's the next question. What do we receive because of being loved by Jesus? Well, we could explore this for quite some time. What is the benefits package, if you will, of being loved by God in Christ? The benefits are too numerous to count and to grasp and to speak, but how about being set free from the captivity of sin? How about becoming adopted into his family as a son and a daughter? How about having supernatural peace that supersedes all of your earthly experiences? How about getting some joy instead of mourning? How about trading your ashes and receiving beauty? How about having fear and anxiety lose its grip on my life? How about being rescued from death and eternal separation from God and instead receiving the joys of heaven forever? That's just some of it. A little bit of the benefits package of the promises of God, what we receive from being loved by God. We know the depths of God's love because of this. And then finally, we know the depths of Christ's love for us by the freedom with which he gave it. Again, obligatory love is not really deep love. But Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me, Pilate but I lay it down freely. On my own accord, I do this. If someone does something nice for you because they're forced to, it really just doesn't mean the same. It doesn't feel like they love you. I mean, when DoorDash shows up to my door, I don't go, oh, thank you. I'm, give me a hug. Thank you for bringing me my food. I paid them to bring me that food. I don't feel love because DoorDash showed up at my door. Any more than when an insurance company writes a check after I've been in a Thank you. Oh, you, got, you gave me this money to pay for this repair on my car? Thank you. Uh, they're obligated to because you pay a monthly a premium for that. Does it feel the same? And here's what Jesus did for us. He willingly laid down his very life for us. His love is so deep and so vast for us, and it's proven with the liberty in which he gave it. Love's depth is proportional to its liberty. How freely do you give it? So make no mistake about it. 
Here's what we're really saying. Here's what we're emphasizing. God loves us with an unfathomable love. And our love for him is how we live. And that is our response to his love for us. That's why it's imperative that we grasp just a little bit of the love of Christ, of the love of God for us in Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. He even said it earlier in Ephesians chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being what? Rooted and grounded in love. This is what, this is our motivation. We're rooted and grounded in love that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. If we do not believe and do not receive the love of God, we will never live in such a way that pleases God. You just won't. Or you'll do it in such a way that is obligatory and becomes an issue of just living morally without understanding that you're living out of the love that God has for you first. So now that we maybe you're grasping the depths of Christ's love, as I said, we can't, but I just wanted to go through that. This is how much God loves us. This is how much God loves you. Again and again, if you don't understand that today or you don't feel loved, this is how much God loves you. And because of that, Paul pivots to give an admonition. It's almost as Paul is saying the depths of Christ's love are so unsearchable, but don't be derailed by the shallow counterfeit because there are some. I'll say it again. God creates Satan counterfeits. That's how we know what the difference is in life. We have to decide, is that the real thing or is that the counterfeit? Is that God or is that my enemy? God is love, so we are known by our love, Scripture says, for him and for one another. So what does Satan try to do? He tries to counterfeit and pervert what God created and call it love. Have you all seen the TV show with the cakes that look like normal everyday stuff? Like, and, and, the, and your point is, is like, you got to decide of all the things up there, which one's the cake? I don't know, we might have some pictures of something like that, like, Like, they, they have all these things, and you're going, and then right there's a cake. Uh, but that, look at that. Are you kidding me? I'm biting into that thinking I've got a big juicy hamburger. And instead I get funfetti in the middle or something, whatever that is. That's a shocker right there. But here's what the enemy does. He'll put all this stuff out there, and it looks exactly like the real thing. Until you bite into it, and you realize that's not a pair of shoes. That's cake. I'm going to tell you something. If somebody gave me some Jordan shoes and then I tried to put them on and it was cake, that, that's rude. That's beyond rude. And here's what the enemy's doing. He's saying, listen, I'm going to take what you think and, and what I think and I'm going to try to make you believe that what I have for you is the real thing and it's actually the counterfeit and you're not going to know until you cut into it and you eat it and you start to get a little sick because of it. He wants you to think the same thing about genuine love. He's the master counterfeiter. And this is what Paul says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. I don't know about you, but like if I'm reading this passage of Scripture and I'm going through verse 1 and 2 and I'm reading about God's love and his forgiveness and his kindness and then all of a sudden it's like a sharp left turn. Like you've ever been asleep in the passenger side of a car and somebody does something and just jolts you awake? 
You know, that's what he feels like reading this passage of scripture. That he, all, he just makes this hard turn from self-sacrificial love to self-indulgent lust. Point being is there's a genuine love and there's a counterfeit or a perversion. And in our culture, we've taken the counterfeit and we, we've accepted it the hook, line, and sinker. Like we picked the cake thinking it was real. And when Paul says sexual immorality and impurity, here's what he's saying. He's covering every kind of sexual sin, all sexual activity outside the God-given boundaries of a loving marriage between a man and a woman. He's covering all of it. He even adds greed. And we're like, well, why is he talking about money? He's not talking about money. What he's saying is, better translated, covetousness, in this context, it's coveting or greedy about someone else's body for your own self-gratification. I think this expands to all kinds of cravings that are not of God. Paul is specifically warning against the dominating power of any and all cravings that are not cravings for him, God. As if that wasn't hard enough in our over-sexualized world, the next one is even harder because it involves our mouth. Now Paul warns against the sins of the tongue, but watch this. Scripture tells us that sins of the tongue are actually sins of the heart because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we like to separate our tongues from our mouths. I'm just kidding. Oh, I, I was just messing around, man. That's not what I really meant. But Scripture does not allow us to separate our mouths from our hearts. When it comes to the condition of your heart, your mouth will tell everybody what it is. Number four, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Depending on your translation, you'll see the word obscenity or filthiness, foolish or silly talk, coarse jesting or joking or levity, and some of y'all are already sweating and looking for the exits. (laughs) But this is not an indictment against all jesting and all joking and all levity. It's an indictment against vulgarity and triviality. Meaning everything, let's put it this way, everything is not sexual and everything is not trivial. A dirty well gives dirty water. This is where we're drawing from. A dirty mind creates a dirty mouth. All three of these indictments refer to a vulgar mind that expresses itself in a vulgar conversation. And I think we all understand about everything being treated as sexual or vulgar. That's where our mind is going. That's what our mouth is saying. We all have the capacity to do this. But I think guys, to the most part, seem to have made it an art. We'll call it the dark arts of simple intonations in their sentences and over-sexualizing everything. Right? Could you do the dishes? Oh, I'll do your dishes. What? I, I, I literally just said, could you do the dishes? That's the dark arts right there. The levity could be a, a, a constant trivializing of everything, making fun of everything, constantly joking about everything, things that aren't really funny. A good question to ask this is, what, is what we are saying edifying or ministering grace to the ones that are hearing? You can find a lot out about a person and a lot about their character by seeing what makes them laugh and on the other side, seeing what makes them weep. 
Now, if you look at the end of the verse four, because I know y'all are all feeling the angst of repentance right now, probably with your minds and your mouths. The, the, the apostle Paul follows the pattern he's been setting forth throughout the book of Ephesians. He instructs us to put off something and to put on something. And in this case, we're instructed as to what to put on in the place of these six other things that we just mentioned that we're to put off, that we just read. Watch how it is only one thing that he tells us to put on. Because sometimes we like to think like, well, God's got to equally have as many good things to cancel out the bad things that the enemy likes to counterfeit. I'm telling you there's only one name. There's only one God. Usually there's only one thing that he asks, and the enemy's got to counterfeit with all kinds of stuff. Just one. I don't have to balance the scales with good stuff. God says, hey, I'll just give you one, and it'll tip the scales in my favor. What is it? Thanksgiving. We're to put on thanksgiving. And if I don't know about you, but I would not have chosen gratitude or thankfulness as the opposite of all these sexual and verbal sins. I'd be like, well, say something nice and, and do this and do this. Gratitude, he's saying, is what you're to put on. It's what you feel when you believe God is for you and he's not against you. Gratitude is what we feel when we believe that God only gives good gifts to his children and doesn't withhold any good thing from us. Gratitude's what we feel whether we're single or we're married. Gratitude's what we feel when we trust God that the tragedies, the trials, and the difficulties of your life are not evidence of God's lack of care. They're not evidence of the fact that God is somehow mean, but rather that they're evidence that he is refining, that he is discipling, that he is pruning, and a loving father values your heart holiness on this earth more than he values your earthly happiness. But God, doesn't God want me to be happy? He wants you to be holy. And in that holiness, there is the deepest of happiness. Yes, happiness is a part of scripture and who we are, and what God's called us to be as his children. But you can see what God is doing. You can see how thanksgiving is the alternative to a life that's driven by cravings for what you don't have, whether it's money or, or sex or whatever other thing it might be out there. Those are just kind of the two that come to our minds when we're talking about stuff like this. But there's all kinds of things that could be a craving in our life more than God. Thanksgiving or gratitude says this. It says, in God, I have all that I need. All that is good for me, I have in him. I'm not gonna be tempted or driven to dishonor the worth of his name just to satisfy some kind of earthly or fleshly desire or craving. And you can see how thanksgiving is also the opposite of treating God's gifts as trivial or filthy. When you're truly grateful for something that God has given us, like his love or the life of his son, you don't despise it, you don't trivialize it, you, 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 you're grateful for it. Just test yourself. When your heart is overflowing with gratitude to God, do you use filthy language or make light of things? No, gratitude is what you feel when you've been given eyes to see that all of life is the work of a sovereign, loving, gracious, heavenly Father. And guess what comes to mind and comes out of our mouth when we realize that? Praise. Praise comes out of our mouths. We can't help but praise God when we see him as he truly is. There's one other way to describe the change implied in this text. Notice verse 5, about halfway through, that a covetous person is also called an idolater. This is one who is covetous, that is an idolater. In other words, the root problem about being driven by the domination of our earthly desires is that it puts me on the throne of my life. It anoints me king of my life and it dethrones God. 
So when Paul puts gratitude in the place of covetousness, he's simply saying you need to put God in the place of where you put yourself. Put God in the place of man. Specifically, he's putting God in the place of my own selfish desires. Gratitude is the opposite of covetousness because it enthrones God. Gratitude says that God is the satisfaction of all my desires and longings. Covetousness says that God's not adequate to supply all of my needs. So I have to have something else to satisfy me, like more money or more stuff or more of this in this relationship, something else, because God doesn't suffice. So perhaps the most important thing for us to see today is that even in the most common, physical, ordinary struggles that we all go through in this life, The central issue is still God and his love for us. When Paul calls our craving idolatry, he's saying, in effect, God should be everything to you. He's he's your God. God should be your pleasure, your satisfaction, your hope, your joy, your Lord, your King. Your life should be governed by an overflowing gratitude to him for his goodness and his glory, his grace and his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his love. Paul is calling the church to purity and holiness. That's what he's calling the church to. And I think... Because a lot of times we think about purity and holiness and we think about all the stuff that we've got to do and we've got to make happen and why we have to do it and we feel obligated to do it. No, listen, we have to remember that purity and holiness, mimicking God, walking in love, flows out of who we already are in Christ. This is not a morality checklist. This is not a big list of moral do's and don'ts so that you can be a good boy or a good girl. No, this is the integration of everything that Paul has been teaching in the book of Ephesians, at least, that we've looked at over the last few weeks. The Christian experience, what we are. Christian theology, what we believe. Christian ethics, how we live and how we behave. They all belong together. What we are determines how we think. How we think determines how we act. And we recall daily what we think, who we are in Christ. We live accordingly, yes, because God is holy and there's a certain level of obligation to a holy God, yes. But more than that, the greatest motivator, the greatest motivation is because God loves you. He loves you. And I'm not saying, you know, like the Beatles song, all you need is love and la, 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 la. That's not it. There's still human agency. There's still decisions and choices that you're going to make in this life. And you have to actively cultivate a life that is pleasing to God. Holiness is not something that you're going to drift into. Sin you can drift into. We're not passive participants in God's sanctification in our lives. On the contrary, we have to be intentionally putting off the things that Paul just said to put off and putting on thanksgiving in this case. Put away all conduct that is incompatible with your new life in Christ and then continually put on a lifestyle that is compatible. The motivation being because we are deeply and unconditionally loved by God. And these immoral things are just not fitting for saints and children that are loved by God. It just doesn't make sense. Paul's exhorting us to renew our minds. He doesn't want us to obey just because there's some threat of penalty. 
He doesn't want you just to do an obligatory obedience with a begrudging heart. Well, I got to go to church today. I am the pastor. He doesn't want that. He wants new creations who live in the world but are not of it, who have new values, new appetites, new desires, so much so that messing around with things like fornication and covetousness and filthiness and levity and a hundred other sins just don't make sense anymore. It just seems out of question because they're just not fitting, he says, for the life of the one who belongs to Jesus. Remember the dirty clothes that I put on a few weeks ago? Well, I didn't put them on, but I went over there and, and smelled them right, you know, out of the laundry hamper or the laundry basket. It's, it's on top, it's like not just that they're not, they're, they're dirty, but they also, they don't fit. You ever tried to put on something that doesn't fit? I mean, we all have. Sometimes we just wear it anyway. Like some of them shirts that I got that I used to be able to wear with a neck, now it's like, hey, I gotta go to this wedding. My neck's just a little bit fatter than it used to be when I was 26. I mean, that's, that's me, that's my shirts. I do have one funny story. When Carl and I first got married, <laughs> she, uh, she would get up and go to work at MCG before I ever was awake. And I was trying to be a good husband a lot of times and, and I would try to get up and with her, although it was really early, and I didn't have to be at work for a couple more hours, but I would get up and, you know, be with her, and then I'd just stand at the window, and she'd walk downstairs, we were in an apartment, and I'd make sure she'd get in her car, and then I'd wave at her, and she'd, I don't know, flash her lights or honk her horn or whatever and go to work. Well, one morning, I was trying to get up and just put some clothes on. It was super dark, and I just start putting my jeans on, and I, and I get these jeans up, and I'm like, God, these things are so tight. <laughs> and then, you know, Carla's finally awake, and she's like, those are my jeans. It's like, and then that's the next thing she goes, and why do they fit you? I'm like, well, well, they don't really fit me, but it was a little shocking. We both weighed, you know, she was about 105 pounds and I was about 125 pounds, but it didn't fit. Let me close with another seemingly jolting turn that Paul makes, and then, but I think it's important. Verse six, let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. What things? The things we've just been talking about. And then also, because of the fact that we've been deceived by empty words, and that we somehow believe that we can do all these things and not have any recompense. As I said a moment ago, you will notice the incentive or motivation wasn't, don't do this because I said so. That's not the motivation. This isn't an external prescription. This is actually an internal description of who we are in Christ. And the only obedience that counts is the obedience that comes from the heart. And obedience from the heart is obedience that comes from a deep agreement that the will of God is not only required, but beautiful and fitting for who are in Christ. Get that? Yes, there is a somewhat of an obligation. I belong to him. But it's so much more than that. It's beautiful and it's fitting because I'm his son and you're his daughter, whatever the case may be. So here's what happens, and what I hope we're gonna see, what I hope we're gonna do in our lives as in focus church, as the body of Christ, that we go from being obligated to dedicated. Why? Because of God's great love for us. You know, when I first met Carla, it wasn't out of obligation, because I think, you know, obligated would be something that is, we don't want. But early on, there was infatuation. 
like, you know, I'd take her picture back when you had, like, not just my phone because I didn't have one, and just stare at it, you know. Oh, I hope I get to see her soon. It's infatuated. Infatuation is, is like this intense feeling that, that doesn't usually last a long time. And a lot of times we'll get infatuated with God. We'll get infatuated with the church. We'll get infatuated with the community and the things that we're receiving. But God wants to take us to a much deeper place. Not obligation. Not infatuation. But dedication. Because of his great love for us. And then he says, don't be deceived. Because like, well, why is he talking about wrath? We're talking about how much God loves us. And now we're talking about God's wrath. I think this is the most loving incentive that you could ever give somebody. Think about it. Hey. If you continue in this manner, we're going to be separated from one another forever. And I don't want that. I love you too much for that to happen. As a matter of fact, I've already proved that I loved you that much by laying my life down for yours so that you could be set free to rest and live in my love and imitate me and walk in the same love that I expressed when I gave my son for you. That's what Scripture is telling us. When we grasp the depths of God's love for us in Christ, our response is to do exactly what he says to do according to his word. And the reason for imitating God and walking in love and not doing all those things that we talked about a moment ago that we're all prone to do and maybe even you're struggling with here today. But instead of that, that we would go to thanksgiving. And the reason that we would do that goes far beyond obligation, much deeper. It's more mature than infatuation. It's dedication. I am dedicated to living for Jesus. Why? Because of his great love for me. I hope that's who we are as a church. That we are holy, that we're pure. Not because we're obligated to do so. But because we want to be so because of God's great love for us. That's the proper response to what Christ has done for us. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.